Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, Episode 63, Byzantine Theodicy, with David Gyllenhaal. Following on from last week's episode, today we continue to look at how the self-image of the Byzantines was affected by the 7th century. This episode is an interview with David Gyllenhaal, a PhD student at Oxford, whose thesis will take us from Justinian through Heraclius to Leo III. When Justinian II had his nose and tongue cut at the end of our narrative, it ushers in a time of crisis for the empire. Half a dozen different emperors will be crowned before finally Leo III establishes a new dynasty. Leo is the man who will introduce a new religious controversy into Byzantium, known to us as iconoclasm, or the destruction of religious icons. You only need to know that that's where we're headed today to understand David's thesis. He's about to offer us an explanation for how the Roman government articulated its disastrous 7th century and came to perceive its future. This is a really important step in understanding the difference between the all-encompassing goals of the Roman Empire and the inward-looking medieval state of Byzantium. A couple more explanations before we begin. From the history of Rome, you may remember Eusebius. He was one of the historians we rely on for our information about Constantine. More than that, though, Eusebius wrote up Constantine in his works as God's vice-regent on earth, the position we have found all the emperors occupying on the history of Byzantium. David pronounces his name Eusebius, and I'm sure he knows better than I do. Uh, A couple other Names are pronounced slightly differently, but the only word you need to know is miaphysite, which David uses, and in this context is just another term for monophysite. Okay, let's begin. Hello, David. Welcome to the History of Byzantium. Hey, Robin. It's really great to be here. So uh, you are you are all listening to David Gyllenhaal, who is a master student in late antique and Byzantine studies here in the UK at the University of Oxford, and uh, he's uh, he's here to tell us uh, some thoughts he's been cooking up with his thesis. It's going to uh, be very interesting. But let's start at the beginning. 
you are a History of Rome and a History of Byzantium podcast listener. So how did you find the podcast? Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan, big listener. Uh, actually, what happened was that I did my undergraduate degree in ancient history, uh, but I actually thought that I was going to go into comparative religion because I focused on religious studies. Uh, so when I got into the, the program for late antique and Byzantine studies in Oxford, uh, I was really quite shocked and a little bit horrified uh, because I didn't think I knew enough Roman history. Uh, and so what ended up happening was that I was looking around for a way to digest as much narrative history as possible so that when people said the name of an emperor, I wouldn't look like an idiot. <laughs> so I had one year to do this before uh, my admission to Oxford. And uh, the best resource that I ended up finding was uh, the history of Rome. Um, so I listened to the entirety of the history of Rome and then right on into uh, your own podcast uh, just to make sure that I wasn't going in totally unequipped uh, compared to people who had actually done their undergraduate degrees in Byzantine studies where I, as I just sort of developed taste uh, in my junior year abroad in Edinburgh when I was taught by uh, an ex-monk uh, wow. who left the Catholic faith to marry a, an ecclesiastical historian he had fallen in love with and who I believe may be a closet neophyte. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> this, we've been having some very interesting discussions off air about the wonderful world of studying Byzantium. Um, I'm, I'm really pleased to hear that, though, because I, I often thought during the history of Rome, you know, I wonder if this would be of benefit to, you know, people doing higher levels of study that you, you get so specialized that maybe you, you lose track of um, little parts of the story. Yeah, well, you need a narrative and also... You can't really lock down the dates or the names unless you have a narrative. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, this is partly why I was so uh, thrilled to get David on the podcast, because as a podcast listener, you know where we are in the story. And your area of study and your thesis happens to line up with where we are at the end of the 7th century, looking back on all that's happened and trying to work out how do the Romans feel about themselves and feel about Islam and what's happened to them. So can you describe for us the nature of your topic of study? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I actually specialize in the seventh century um, and I specialize in particular on how the Byzantine self-image was transformed by the seventh century. So in order to answer that question of what is sort of what I think of as East Rome, at the time of the coup of Phocas, how is that different from what I really think of as Byzantium by the time you get to Leo III, the first uh, of the Isaurians and the first iconoclast? Um, and I, the way that I approach figuring this out is I look at uh, late Roman and early Byzantine political theology, and I try to figure out what exactly is different. Uh, I should I should probably step in there and just say for those of you who. Uh who haven't read ahead or don't know the narrative well, uh, Leo III, the first of the Isaurians, is, is the emperor who will uh, emerge from the post-Justinian II uh, exile uh, crisis. So that kind of puts it in context between the two, uh, the, the death of Maurice to the, to the end of the period of crisis that will come after this. That's your, that's your area. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there were some really profound transformations there, which make it meaningful to talk about the end of East Rome and the beginning of Byzantium. Uh, so when I say political theology is what I study, uh, this is 
essentially what we would understand as ideology living in a modern nation-state polity. Uh, every nation-state has to come up with a story about why things are the way they are, how things ought to be, and why the state is uniquely qualified to get us from point A to point B. Uh, the late Romans and the early Byzantines had, uh, the East Romans rather, and the early Byzantines uh, had to answer exactly the same questions, but they tended to answer those questions in theological language, in terms of the plan of the gods, or later, after Constantine, of God, for the empire and its people, uh, and how exactly the emperor and the state participated in and brought about that plan. Uh, what I look at in particular, though, is, is what's called theodicy, uh, which is the explanation, essentially, of why bad things happen to good people. Uh, at the political level, though, this is how, do, how does the post-Constantinian empire explain why bad things happen to the uh, God-favored and Christ-loving uh, polity of the Romans? And there are a lot of bad things happening to the polity of the East Romans um, in this time. So this is a particularly hot issue. Um, what I look at in particular, uh, at least at the moment, is actually the reign of Heraclius, uh, because I think that this marks probably the most important change uh, between what I think of as the ideology or the political theology of East Rome and the uh, ideology or political theology of, um, of Byzantium. Um, and I think it takes sort of the entire course of the 7th century to work out this momentous change. But by the end, it's, it's very firmly rooted, and it's a very, very different narrative of how exactly the world works. Interesting. I think, um, you know, I've definitely tried to continue a phrase that uh, Mike Duncan used back on the history of Rome. I think when he was talking about um, Elagobolus, uh, you know, trying to change the patron deity of Rome, um, from Jupiter to Sol Invictus, and he says, you know, this was more than a religious question, it was a question of national security. And that kind of touches on what you're talking about, that that, that self-conception becomes very much part of the state's policy-making. Um, so by our period, by the late Roman period, what was the nature of that political theology and theodicy? Uh, well, the curious thing about... Uh about ideology after Diocletian is in a lot of ways how, how little it's actually changed. And the even more curious thing is how little it's changed after Constantine. Uh, if we look at, um, at Constantine's reign as this, as this great break point between the pagan Roman Empire and the Christian Roman Empire, uh, what we end up honing in on in terms of what's the change in self-conception is really, I think, the writings of Eusebius, um, which most people who listened to uh, the history of Rome will probably remember. Uh, the two big ones to point out of Eusebius's writings are, first, his uh, church history, uh, which is an account of the persecutions, which culminates in this sort of epoch-changing event, which is the empire uh, granting tolerance to Christians and in fact having a Christian emperor at its head, and the life of Constantine, uh, which is a half-pangeric, half-biography, half... It's not really quite anything else that's ever been written. It doesn't fit very neatly into a genre, but it does establish uh, the precedent for how Christian emperors are depicted in East Rome, late Roman and then East Roman 
uh, ideology in panegyric, in uh, the type of imagery that's that's promulgated in laws, um, and in histories, both ecclesiastical, which also descend from Eusebius's ecclesiastical history, uh, and even in secular histories. And I, I think a lot of listeners will have sort of picked up on this idea from from Justinian's reign that the emperor is viewed as sort of you know God's vice regent on earth sort of people are quite familiar with that but a lot of that comes from Eusebius's writing about Constantine yeah absolutely um and the key thing to note about Eusebius's writing is that really the the story of this big transformation is very much the story of Constantine himself um and in that sense it's not all that different from the types of stories told by Suetonius or Plutarch it's a story that's concentrated in the imperial person and in the moral excellence of the imperial person, uh, which produces victory. Um, it's really just a variant of uh, the theory of history, which the Romans had sort of always run, which is what we would probably think of as the great man theory of history. Um, and within the great man theory of history, uh, every everything can be explained by the moral excellence or the moral failure of particular individuals. So let's say we rewind way, way, way back into the history of Rome podcast. Um, you may remember the Battle of Trapana in the First Punic War, uh, which was the naval battle where the Roman general Admiral Pulcher, uh, or Pulcher um, sailed up to uh, a harbor on the south side of uh, Sicily, I think it was Lillabium, and uh, surrounded the Carthaginian fleet therein. Uh, unfortunately, his formation was seriously broken up, and he wasn't really ready by the time that John came. Uh, there are a lot of fairly ordinary secular reasons why uh, the Romans were heavily defeated in this battle. But if we read Cicero's account of it um, in uh, his book on the nature of the gods, it's very clear that it's actually Pulcher's fault, and it's Pulcher's fault because the sacred chickens wouldn't eat, giving him the good omen, and so he threw the sacred chickens overboard and drowned them. Um, it's a fairly memorable story, which I think probably stuck with a lot of people from the history of Rome. Yeah, um, uh, and then that just sort of establishes the sort of the way Romans told stories about past battles that a defeat was the fault of the impious commander, and the victory was the result of the Romans doing the right things by the gods. Yeah, and particularly uh, of, of particular great men who sort of occupy, um, who occupy the, the central role and are more or less solely responsible for what happens. Um, this is sort of why so much of our Roman history actually comes by way of biography. Um, and if you think of, of, of authors like Plutarch and Suetonius, the way they write up the history of the empire is it's the story of its emperors, directly just the story of its emperors and either their moral excellence or their moral failure. Uh, there is a certain amount of, uh, of hand-wringing over, you know, o mores o tempores, of the Roman people as a whole and their sort of moral decline. Uh, but that's really always a secondary note uh, to the morality of the particular individual who is at the head, at the head of the state. Uh, the health of the ever-victorious empire is always linked directly to the moral hygiene of the emperor himself. And so when th if things go bad during Caligula's reign or Nero's reign, it's all because Caligula is 
a crazy son of a bitch, or because Nero is completely out of his mind. Um, there may have been a lot of reasons why particular bad things were going on in those reigns, but the only story that we hear of it is the emperor is not morally hygienic, and so the empire as a whole is suffering. That's always the narrative. Um, in a lot of ways, this continues a, a much more ancient pattern of monarchy, which is familiar to maybe some people from Egypt, <clears throat> where the head of the state occupies what I would call a substitutionary role in the eyes of the gods. He stands in for the people of his empire, and their fortunes rise and fall according to whether his behavior is pleasing to the gods or not. Um, and this actually pops up in a lot of cultures. So, for instance, there are some uh, uh, Neolithic um, African uh, kingship systems where if there's no rain or if, uh, if, if there's infertility, then you kill the king and you get a new king, a better king, mm -hmm. and then fertility returns. Um, and there's some good evidence that uh, early Irish kings may have occupied this same role. If there's bad environmental conditions, it's because you have a bad king, a not morally hygienic king. Uh, so, and in this case, even though the empire becomes more and more Christian after Constantine, you think the same basic pattern of ideology remains, just in a Christian context? Yes, yeah. the imperial cult uh, has gone. But everything is still focused on the imperial person and whether the imperial person is morally hygienic and whether the imperial person, more importantly for most of the authors that we have from the 4th and 5th century, is orthodox. Um, but we have a bit of both. Um, almost invariably, when you look at our sources for the 4th and 5th century, when bad things are happening, uh, it's attributed to the fact that the emperor is either immoral or unorthodox. So, for instance, I mean, just to take one example, Malalas says a lot of bad things happen. Malalas is a, is a, 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 a Syrian chronicler who was writing in Greek. But he says a lot of bad things happened um, during the reign of Zeno, and he attributes them all to the fact that Zeno is sexually insatiable um, and greedy and a bad person. Um, and if we go back to a more familiar example for your listeners, uh, which is Justinian, um, think of the secret history. Um, in the secret history, Procopius blames Justinian for plague, earthquakes, military defeat, and pretty much everything else that's bad that's happening to the empire, because Justinian is greedy um, and horrible, and his wife is a slut, um, etc., etc., etc. It's all focused on the imperial person. Right. Um, so again, that that long-established way of thinking about the state remains even as the empire becomes Christian and becomes what we think of as Byzantium, the Eastern Empire. Um, so how does this begin to change then uh, by as we approach the 7th century or as we enter the 7th century? How do you see this idea morphing? Uh, well, I think there's, there's sort of an example that it might be useful to bring out before we move into that. Um, I think it's important to realize that imperial Roman ideology uh, is a lot like modern American ideology, and that it was made very brittle by dint of its extremely long success. Um, if you've watched the movie Patton... Uh, I haven't, no. There's a, there's a great monologue in the movie Patton, where Patton, who's this famous World War II American general, says... 
Um, Americans have never and will never lose a war. That's very much part of the American identity. Uh, so when the Vietnam War happened, that was a, a huge blow to the American consciousness. And it almost created a sort of crisis of identity. We didn't even really know how to think of ourselves anymore. And it took a lot of adjustment to get us to the point where we did. And most of that adjustment was denying that Vietnam was actually a defeat, which it obviously was. Um, <laughs> we sort of had to convince ourselves that that was not a defeat and that we did not have to integrate that into our self-image. And I think the Romans were much the same. I mean, if you think of uh, Justinian's titulature, as he outlines um, when he promulgates a new law, he's Pius Victor Augustus, or sorry, Pius uh, Triumphator Augustus. Um, and all of the various, uh, all of the various epithets, uh, Germanicus, Britannicus, etc. Everything is bound up with the fact that the emperor is ever victorious, um, and that the the empire is ever victorious. So, starting in the sixth century and continuing and escalating, obviously in the early seventh century, there's a lot of defeat. Plague starts to happen. There are a lot of plagues and earthquakes in Justinian's reign. Antioch is sacked, etc. And so you have those murmurings from Procopius. But think of how bad it would be for Heraclius. He's a usurper, and his actions, as you've pointed out, probably directly caused the Euphrates breakthrough of Khosrows II um, and lead to the fall of basically the entire uh, Levant and eventually Egypt. And then think about the fact that Heraclius, within the first three years of his reign, is personally defeated in battle north of Antioch in 613. That hasn't happened since Valens, and Valens at least had the good sense to die. <laughs> and then between 613, uh, you have nine years until Heraclius has anything even remotely worth talking about on the military front. He doesn't achieve, and even then, a very small victory until 622. Five yeah, it's something uh, you you said to me that I read a lot, which was you know it is it is kind of amazing that he that there aren't uprisings against him because emperors who suffered far more minor catastrophes were overthrown almost immediately. Yeah, I mean because it's 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 deeply ingrained in the Roman consciousness that uh, sort of moral excellence in your leader creates victory, and if you're defeated, it's because of a moral failure in your leader. Uh, so it's really a miracle that, that uh, Heraclius wasn't deposed. And I think that a lot of this miracle is tied up with the fact that he managed to change the narrative. Uh, it's useful at this point to sort of rewind Justinian again. If we look at Justinian's laws, which discuss the plague, what he says about the plague is obviously not, I caused the plague by being a horrible person. It's the plague was brought on us because of our sins. In a sense, essence, he's changing the narrative uh, to putting the blame for this on the collective moral ill health of the empire as a whole, of the people as a whole. Um, and that is actually the germ of what the, the Heraclean dynasty will eventually develop into a very different ideological system. And, and do, you th do you think... Uh, the, the, that's kind of the start of it, Justinian's reign, or do you think this idea was kind of 
coming about before that? Um, I think it's actually an idea that's probably as old as the Christian Empire itself and maybe older than that. Uh, because what ends up replacing this old Roman narrative, sort of the great man theory of history, if you will, is actually a narrative that's drawn directly from the Hebrew Bible, or what most people know of as the Old Testament. And I think that the narrative, uh, the basic narrative of the Hebrew Bible had been being used to explain misfortune by bishops for hundreds of years before this already. Uh, before I can explain why this happened, though, um, and how eventually this narrative used by bishops was taken up by uh, the emperor himself. I need to explain sort of how the narrative works for people who aren't um, uh, super familiar with the Old Testament. Uh, the, the basic story of the Old Testament is it's the story of a series of contracts between God and humanity, which humanity is constantly breaking. Um, the first contractor in biblical language covenant that God makes with us is after he destroys the entirety of humanity and all living things in the flood. He puts a rainbow in the sky and says, I will never destroy the earth again. Um, after that, as you go further into Genesis, he makes a covenant with Abraham where he says, you and your descendants will prosper and flourish in a land that I will give you, which is the land uh, of Canaan. And from then on, the entire story of the Bible is of a direct bilateral relationship between God and all of Abraham's descendants as a whole, as a whole people, in the way that we would normally think of a nation. Uh, and people, the, the people as a whole, are ultimately responsible for what happens to them. And generally what happens to them is that they break the terms of God's deal. So... If we think of God's deal as uh, he makes a lot of different deals, but one of them is the Ten Commandments, which involves not worshiping idols. And anybody who's read any part of the Pentateuch uh, knows that the Israelites are constantly going back on that and worshiping idols, at which point God will send plague or one of their, allow one of their enemies to have victory over them, uh, at which point the people repent and God restores his favor, and then they're victorious over their enemies, or the plague leaves. But it's essentially a bilateral relationship between God and his people. There are mediating figures. Um, sometimes they're prophets like Moses. Sometimes they're judges like Joshua. Sometimes they're kings like David or Saul. But they're mediating figures. They're not substitutionary fig figures. God doesn't evaluate their moral health and equate it with the moral health of people. You can have a good king, but a bad people. Um, one of the best examples is, is a king called Hezekiah. Now, what, is, what significance does this have for, for our narrative here in late Rome? Well, I think that this became a really great narrative for explaining crappy things happening to particular cities. And who is probably the most important figure in charge of particular cities at this point? It's the bishop. So when plague happens to a city or when they're besieged, a bishop can tell this narrative that because of our sins, um, the enemy is at the gates or we've been inflicted with plague. We need to repent um, publicly and seriously and reform our ways, and then things will get better again. And we have a lot of texts um, before the time of Heraclius in which this happens. Um, there's a text called, uh, well, scholars have named it the Chronicle of Pseudo-Joshua the Stylite. But it's, it's basically the, the story of a minor cleric in Edessa who tells the story of 
lots of bad things happening to Edessa in the Persian War of Anastasius. So there's, um, there's an earthquake in Edessa, there's a, a famine, and they get besieged by, uh, by uh, Kavad I. Lots of bad things happen. There's locusts as well. And Pseudo-Joshua, the supposed author of this chronicle, traces all this back to the fact that they had celebrated what he considered a pagan festival, which is essentially the same as worshipping idols. So the biblical cycle that I've just outlined takes place. God punishes them. He sends plague. He sends enemies. He sends locusts. Then the people repent. Um, they trust in God's promises. They reform their behavior, and things get better. Um, so, and so you think this this idea is is existing on the local level, and perhaps Heraclius uh, starts to absorb that into how he is putting out PR statements on the various disasters in his first decade on the throne. Absolutely, I think we can see this very clearly. Um, now, we've mentioned George of, of Pisidia, who was the court poet of, uh, of, of Heraclius. Um, the first poem that we know of written by George of Pisidia was written actually the year that uh, Heraclius um, overthrew Phocas in a coup. Um, and George of Pisidia makes a very interesting metaphor there. He says that what Heraclius has done in overthrowing and killing Phocas is exactly the same as what... Um, as what Phineas did um, in the Bible. Now, this refers to a story in the Bible where Phineas, who's, who's the high priest, um, finds out that some of the Israelites are copulating with Midianite women, um, <laughs> which is not allowed because Midianite women are <laughs> idolaters and they'll make the people of Israel idolatrous. So he runs and finds uh, one of the Israelites who has flaunted his Midianite mistress and spears both of them through in flagrante. And then the problem is solved. There's no more plague, which, which, uh, which uh, God had been sending. So in this case, we're directly saying that Phocas is um, this, uh, this sort of recalcitrant Israelite who had been causing all of the problems. And if you just kill him, then everything goes back to normal and it's great again. Now think of what a crappy precedent this is for Heraclius only two years later, um, or three years later after the Battle of Antioch. Um, why on earth shouldn't the same logic apply to him? That if you just get rid of him and put somebody else on the throne, it'll all be great. Uh, so you can see why he has this horrible dilemma. And if you think about the fact that uh, Sergius, who's his patriarch, is actually uh, from the Syriac world, um, who had probably developed this ideology more than most because, well, they got besieged a lot. Um, <laughs> He gradually, I think, takes up this narrative, and it starts to be a story about how the people of Byzantium as a whole have been sinful, and he needs to lead them in repentance as a mediating figure, not as a substitutionary figure. Um, and this is the way that good kings work in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, the king can be what I like to call the penitent-in-chief. Um, one good story from the Bible is the story of uh, Jonah, who actually is told by God to go to Nineveh, and tell them that they've been super bad, and God is going to wipe them off the map just like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. When he tells them this, their king, the king of Nineveh, actually leads them in repentance. He puts on a sackcloth, and he pours ashes over his head. And he leads them all in prayers and repentance and reforming their way of life, at which point God says, okay, I won't destroy Nineveh. 
uh, we actually find uh, Theophylact Simicata in a, in a minor text using this exact analogy for describing a good king. And I think that in a lot of ways, he's really talking about the strategy that, uh, that Heraclius adopted. A lot of this sort of religious uh, imagery that he adopts, and we, you, know, we, you mentioned that he, he, in George of Pisidia's later poems describing some of his campaigns, he's always leading all of his troops in collective prayer and collective repentance and fasting, etc., etc. And if we look at other texts, uh, one text that I look at in particular is, is a sermon, like an actual sermon that was delivered to the people of Constantinople by a guy named Theodore Sincellus after the Avar siege. Um, and in this sermon, he explicitly says, the Avars came because of all of our sins, um, but we need to follow our emperor, who is sort of just like uh, one of the good biblical kings, a king like Hezekiah or David, in repenting and reforming our way of life. Uh, and if we do this, uh, then we'll have victory over our enemies. It's really interesting because um, the way you've laid it out, I think, um, will help people understand this relentless concern for bringing everyone within orthodox worship that if if you as the emperor are using um this sense that that it's the people's responsibility in a way i mean obviously you are leading them but you want them all to be right with god for the sake you know the safety of the state then when the war's over you know you've been pushing this idea you now need to take it to its logical conclusion and bring everybody together under one um, you know the right way of of believing, and I, and I think sometimes listeners have trouble, you know, understanding why it was such a big deal, what people understood about Jesus's nature. But you can kind of see from this that it's all wrapped up in in the the security of the state and the security of the emperor, the emperor's person against, you know, um, political assassination. Like all these things are tied together in in what you think religion's relationship with the state is. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Um, so what what are the implications for this change from um, the emperor's personality to the people's sinfulness? What what are the implications for the Byzantine Empire from that point on? Um, there, I think at first this was sort of a fairly it, it was sort of a, a no brainer as a tactic for the imperial office, but it became more and more entrenched as the century went on. Um, you can imagine that this would be just as useful to have in your pocket if you are now of course we know almost nothing about the reign of Constance the second but if you're Constance the second and the Battle of Phoenix has just happened you're going to want to use the same rhetoric you definitely don't want people saying that because you personally are sinful and uh, a, a bad emperor this is why this has happened it's much much nicer to be able to say that because of our sins as a whole this is why it happened um, and so I think that this rhetoric escalated throughout the century. Um, and as it did, uh, more and more components of the biblical narrative about the relationship between God and his chosen people uh, came to be assimilated into the Byzantine self-image. They increasingly really did uh, assimilate almost all of the details of this biblical relationship, this contractual relationship between God and his people. Uh, but there are some unexpected consequences of taking up this, this ideology and this story wholesale. One of which is that uh, the biblical story doesn't actually, be, so rather the 
story of the Hebrew Bible doesn't actually have a lot of room for a universalizing conception of the chosen people. Um, and this took a long time to, uh, to change, because if you think about Constans and Heraclius, um, they maintained monopolitism, which is essentially a very universalizing, uh, a universalizing gesture. Uh, the idea is that imperial unity, the unity of, of, of all people within the empire in belief, is a virtue unto itself. And people increasingly began to disagree with that. Uh, one example would be Maximus the Confessor. Maximus the Confessor, who uh, opposed monoenergism very, very stringently, um, uh, in line with his mentor, Sophronius, who was the first to speak out against it, um, also consistently uh, contested, uh, for instance, Heraclius's uh, gesture to um, baptize the Jews. Um, this forcible baptism was anathema to Maximus because he said that all it would actually do is just bring polluting elements into the body politic. If we go back to the biblical narrative, um, the way that you get right with God and make good things happen is not to include more people or to widen the scope of your community. It's to purify internally and above all to get rid of idols, um, to become more just um, less idolatrous, to sort of cut out the cancer internally from the body politic. Um, there's actually a biblical concept of, of the remnant, the idea of a, a righteous remnant, um, which comes probably largely from the moment uh, recounted in Second Kings between uh, chapters 17 and 18, which happens uh, during the reign of Hezekiah, when Samaria and Israel is wiped out by the Assyrians and carried off. But Judah survives, and there's this idea that Judah remains because they're more righteous, because they've purified themselves internally. And it's interesting to parallel that to the experience of Byzantium. They've lost the entire uh, sphere of, of Miaphysite belief, and they've been left with this Chalcedonian rump state. Um, and I think that for Maximus, it's really almost he, he thinks all the better. You know, we've cut out the cancers internally, and that's actually what we need to be victorious. That's actually what we need to abide by our covenant with God. Um, I think Byzantium over time becomes a covenant kingdom, which sees the basic narrative of its existence as keeping the, its contract with God, which involves orthodox belief and increasingly right practice. Um, and I think as we move into the next century, we'll find that Byzantium is actually quite like other early medieval states in that way. Uh, Carolingian Francia, the Charlemagne's uh, empire, is very similar. Um, Charlemagne really takes up this idea that he is a mediating figure between his people as a whole and God, and that it's his responsibility to, to, um, to uh, release moralizing legislation uh, to make sure that his uh, kingdom is not engaging in the type of behavior that, for instance, the biblical prophets are always condemning and saying is the reason why Israel is doing badly against the Assyrians. It's because, you know, you're oppressing widows and orphans and because you're being idolatrous and because you're being greedy, etc., etc., etc. So by the time that we get to uh, Leo III, who's about to come into our story, I think that this is really the way that the Byzantines think of themselves. They are the heirs of the biblical covenant. 
And the way that they're going to uh, regain their empire and to, to have victory over the Arabs is by becoming as pure internally as possible. In a lot of ways, this sort of universalizing and inclusive uh, thrust that we've seen from so many emperors, from Zeno uh, right through to uh, Constantius II, doesn't really have a place in Byzantium anymore. Um, universality for its own sake is, is not a virtue that makes as much sense anymore, because it's just not really very biblical in a lot of ways. Um, it's Pauline is in a sort of a New Testament sense. That's this very much sort of the, the, the gist of the letters of Paul, that you're going to include the Gentiles in the Old Covenant. Uh, but the, I think the Byzantines are increasingly thinking in terms of the, of the, of the covenant between God and Israel as, as their own covenant. And there are a lot of texts where they say this very directly. Um, and I think this may actually manifest in their increasing hostility to the Jews. Because they have to say that the Jews are not actually the heirs of that old covenant. They're the heirs of that old covenant. This covenant refers to us, not to them. We find this in all kinds of literature throughout the 7th century. This idea that the Jews broke the covenant. They no longer have a covenant. The covenant of God is with us now. And so the the kind of what we think of as a very Roman concept over the centuries of uh, trying to find a way to get everyone within the state to buy into the ideology suddenly starts to morph that that those who were citizens of the empire are now kind of forgotten in a in a in that the people left within Byzantium are all looking inward yes more yes. or less I'm concerned about um, are we internally pure um, and are we a, a righteous community which is capable of gaining God's favor. And the interesting thing is that this kind of self-conception is actually mirrored in um, the other uh, Christian communities left by, uh, enfolded by the Arab invasions. This is increasingly the way that the Coptic Christians think of themselves, um, the Miaphysite uh, Coptic Christians, um, that they're going to be restored eventually because they've cut off all contact with impure elements and that they need to sort of be a, a righteous remnant is, is the term to think of. Uh, a, a remnant of you know the former community, but they are righteous and correct, and they've been purified of, of contaminants. And it's interesting the the geographical element of this that the the Coptic Christians in Egypt are cut off from direct frequent contacts with other Christians once the the Arab Empire has taken over. The same way that the the Byzantines are now hemmed in behind the Taurus Mountains again cut off from direct frequent contact so begin to look inward and lose that uh, old roman sense of a universalizing inclusive uh, ideology yeah i think that's i think that's a really important point uh, before this period in the west um, peter brown has who's a very prominent uh, scholar of late antiquity has already talked about micro christianities the early medieval world is much more fractured than the roman world and so each of these Christian self-identities uh, develop in, in remarkable isolation. Uh, but what's most remarkable for me is that almost all of the Christian communities, and I would really include the new Islamic community, take up this narrative of being a covenant kingdom, of being the one religious community which is genuinely adhering to the covenant with God, and that if they rigorously adhere to this, and if they purify internally, uh, relentlessly, then eventually uh, they'll be granted uh, they'll be granted sort of ultimate and total victory. 
Um, I, I really see the, the century that we're moving into, the eighth century, as sort of the great century of, of covenant kingdoms. So kind of the, the power of the, the ideology developed over so long in the Jewish kingdom kind of comes home to be a very sort of powerful inspiration in both Byzantium and the Caliphate. Yeah, I mean, not to be um, insensitive, but I mean, one way to, th to think of, of, of the Hebrew Bible is that um, the, 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 the Jewish kingdom ended up being the, the most successful losers in history. Because they didn't do very well geopolitically, and yet their narrative came to define the, the self-image of the entire uh, post-Roman world. And sort of the new Abrahamic commonwealth that we're moving into uh, adopted that narrative wholesale. And the narrative of this tiny Levantine kingdom, um, more than a millennia previously, becomes the narrative by which all of the different communities or almost many of the different communities of the, of the post-Roman Mediterranean articulate their self-image and their own story. It's really quite fascinating um, yeah. and quite tragic in that the, the big desideratum here is that the Jews are still around. <laughs> yeah. They're the only ones who are actually adhering to all of the details of, of Levitican and Mosaic law, which is just always going to be very awkward for all of these kingdoms which are trying to take over their covenant. Um, they're trying to take the covenant away from the Jews for themselves. Um, and so a lot of the, the, the roots of anti-Semitism, there, there are many different roots, but this certainly is, I think, one of them, um, that these early medieval kingdoms are, are trying to take their covenant. Um, and the, just the continuing existence of the Jews is very awkward. <laughs> that's, that's fascinating. Um, what's very uh, handy from the podcast point of view about your area of study is that it's taken us from you know Justinian through Heraclius and dropped us on the doorstep of where we will begin in the next century which is kind of the the iconoclasm which will become kind of the big um, religious dispute of the next century um, do you want to talk just very briefly about how uh, the, the covenant kingdom of Byzantium will will sort of step into that arena. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I sort of like to just very briefly tell a, a particular story from the Bible, which I think is sort of emblematic about what's going to happen, um, which is the, the story of, of 2 Kings chapter 17 to 20. Um, this is the story of when the Assyrians destroy Israel, the, the northern kingdom, and just leave the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, and the reason given is because, A, the Israelites um, were unjust and they oppressed widows and orphans, didn't abide by uh, the moral law. And B, and more importantly, uh, they worshipped idols. Um, what happens in Judah, which is the southern kingdom, is that after the Assyrians destroy uh, and, and carry off into captivity uh, Israel or, or Samaria, um, Hezekiah... The first thing that he does when he comes to power, uh, at my age exactly, exactly, in fact, he's 25, and the first thing that he does is he goes through the entire kingdom and he breaks down the sacred pillars and he smashes Nehushtan, which is this uh, bronze serpent which they had formerly made, which they had begun to apparently reverence. Um, and then he, he rips his clothes and covers his head with, with, with ashes um, and makes this very elaborate uh, penance and makes his entire household... Uh, do likewise and everybody in the palace he sort of 
becomes this penitent in chief. And what happens because he's done this is that after the Assyrians come and lay siege to Jerusalem, um, God sort of accepts that the covenant has been restored and he sends an angel uh, in the night who kills, I think it's 185,000 Syrians, Assyrians while they're sleeping, which is, of course, an impossible number. <laughs> but the key to why Hezekiah was able to be a successful penitent in chief and uh, produce military victory um, for his people was destroying the idols. That was the key. That was the first thing that had to go. So if we're thinking of, uh, of a Byzantium which is increasingly articulating its own story in terms of the narrative of the Hebrew Bible, uh, it's almost inevitable that, not even necessarily the, at the imperial level, this had percolated all the way down. And in fact, it was, it, was a grassroots, it was a grassroots movement in the first place, I think coming up from the civic level, from, from stories articulated by bishops. How can the Byzantines not eventually start to wonder if rigorous adherence to the second commandment would be part of restoring their own covenant with God and restoring themselves to military favor in the face of the, the new Assyrians, um, uh, which they often, re which they often referred to, uh, to the Arabs as. Mm. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your thesis. I think it's been a, a great addition to these end of the century episodes where we try to, dig deep into uh, the minds of the Byzantines and, and understand how they were thinking and feeling. Thanks so much for having me. It's just, it's, it's a, it's a really a privilege to sort of be a part of this because it, it's very important um, to me personally that, that we sort of get the story of Byzantium out as something that people can, can access um, without uh, doing something insane, like trying to get a master's degree. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you enjoyed today's interview. As we go forward in the narrative, you can see whether you agree with David's thesis about the way the Byzantines were viewing themselves and their future. Next week, I'll be answering the final batch of your 7th century questions, and then we return to the narrative and head into the early 8th century crisis and the great siege of Constantinople. <laughs>